0: Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer, as always. Today, you'll be hearing an interview Sam did with music journalist Dan Ozzy. Last year, Ozzie published the book Sellout, the major label Feeding Frenzy, the swept punk, emo, and hardcore from 1994 to 2007. Um, The book mainly focuses on 11 bands who made the jump from indie to a major and chronicles their experience and some of the inner workings behind this really kind of moment in the American music industry where it kind of was going through a lot of transitions. First, there was this sort of post-grunge era, but then with the rise of digital downloads and the collapse of the music industry, all stuff that we've covered extensively. And, you know, why we've certainly touched on this trend um, of majors gobbling up indie bands during this year, we've never really like dedicated an episode to it. So, like, we were very excited to, like, have uh, Ozzy come on and, like, chat with Sam about this uh, really interesting and great book um, that I feel like needed, needed a history. It needed a history. Um, but, before we talk, but before we talk about that, let's just go ahead and make sure that we do some housekeeping. Um, once again, I want to remind you of the Penny Fractions live show, fifth anniversary, featuring David Turner, the great podcast Art and Labor. Uh, Money for Nothing, not me, but Sam from Money for Nothing will be there. And that will be at Nowadays in Brooklyn on Wednesday, November 9th. In addition to the podcast, there will also be some great guests that are going to be coming through. Uh, Liz Pelley, who we were fortunate enough to have on our own show, is going to be there. And probably some special guests as well. Who knows? It's going to be a great time. That's, once again, November 9th at Nowadays. So oh, uh, there's a you get a zine? Oh, a you limited get a zine. edition zine? Interesting. Okay. Good to know. Dave's David's a David's a big zine guy, actually. Okay. And so it's probably gonna be a badass zine. It's gonna be a good zine. I mean, certainly it's limited edition, so. Yeah, so please come through. It's gonna be amazing. But to today's topic, Sam, maybe just to like kind of kick us off before we get into the interview you did with Dan, what were some of the reasons why you really wanted to go ahead and like reach out to Ozzy and talk about this this book? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, look, it, it's a story that like you said we've mentioned a bunch of times um and is one that i think is like kind of uh, foundational to a lot of the narratives of the music industry in, in the 90s um right that there's like grunge happens and the people who signed those grunge bands make an endless amount of money and then that kind of kicks off a, a change in the music industry um and all of a sudden you know the year punk broke or whatever and then um it like fundamentally remakes where uh where labels are looking for um new talent and that then afterwards there's this kind of story that there's this um kind of a like a massive feeding frenzy um there's this massive kind of throwing money at everything that moves that somehow kind of destroys this previous scene um and that, that kind of leads to the, the fall of, of, the I guess, like the 80s Garden of Eden almost. And, and what I think... The 80s Garden of Eden. The 80s Garden of Eden. I like The that. 80s Underground Garden of Eden. You know? That, that like, that indie world um, where everything good flourished and every band was a burgeoning fugazi. And basically, I think what, what Dan's done here, and one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to him, is he's... Um, not like so much exploded that story because I think in, in certain elements, like the outlines of that story are still correct, but more like, um, complicated it in a lot of ways. Um, and kind of pointing out some of the ways in which, uh, there's a process, the way that selling out or, um, getting signed to a major changes over time, the kind of different waves of bands that approach this moment in different ways. And the ways that in some cases, um, you know it's not all stories of disaster and that for especially for some of these bands like they needed to sign to a major that it wasn't really an option um for probably most importantly green day like it wasn't an option for green day to not sign to a major
0: yeah i think i think that's that's a really I like the way that you described, like, the book that, like, Dan didn't really, like, explode it, but kind of almost, like, you know, he pointed towards this history that, like, really needed to be, like... Complicated. Yeah, it's it's complicated, and it also needed to be, like, covered, and I think that, you know, something you told me probably, like, you know, well over, like, almost 10 years ago where... um, you know, I I did like a documentary, radio documentary for Afro Pop Worldwide on like Jamaican music and culture, like in New York, and I was like fielding emails after it went to air about how you know there was like some stories that I hadn't covered and things that I hadn't covered, and like you said something about like yeah, I mean that's common in history, like you just have to like start the conversation and then people build on it, you know, kind of kind of thing, and I think that's kind of what this is. It's like there's this definitely this moment which I've mentioned, and I think when I mentioned this kind of era in which like Dan's writing about. I was kind of thinking more about the sort of two thousand five, two thousand six moment when, like, all of a sudden, like, Modest Mouse was on the radio, yeah, and like, it definitely felt like there really was at the time this like shift, the shift that sort of reoriented what I had traditionally, what I had traditionally understood as like the underground music at the time, and it like suddenly seemed like being indie or being underground meant something like else all of a sudden, and that was like you know, partly due to, like, you know, what Dan covers, like, majors gobbling up indie bands. But it also felt like it had a lot to do with, like, the rise of social media, you know, with, like, MySpace. And then all of a sudden, like, like, maybe the popularity of Pitchfork, which the f- when it first launched, you know, and for a good long while after, it was, like, only mainly focusing on indie and underground music. But then also, like, with digital downloads, mostly illegally, it became, like, a lot easier to obtain music. And so, like, I don't know, it felt suddenly, like, at this time as if someone like some people behind the major labels were like reading and listening to like the same stuff that I was <laughs> and like which as Dan books which as Dan's book kind of shows in a way that's actually exactly what was happening
1: so i mean that was one of the, the the most interesting things i took away from um the book but even maybe even more than that the interview which is like we tend to think of major labels right as these like monolithic like, all-consuming, like, octopus tentacle beasts, right? Like, I think we tend to give them a lot more, like, omniscience and uh, tactical acuity than sometimes they actually have. And one of the stories... One way to to, to characterize the histories in this book are the major labels pull a KLF and burn a million pounds. (laughs) And basically, it's just... Terrible decision after terrible decision of like, like, like I could be wrong, but like, in what world is against me going to make that major label a million dollars?
0: Like, and like nothing against against nothing me,
1: against, like great music me. and everything, music just and everything. like it's just let's be real, right? And in some ways, against me or uh jawbreaker, or like they're picking these bands, like some bands, right? Like Green Day is gonna make you infinite money, and but like. And my chemical romance is gonna make you infinite money. And sometimes, admittedly, you can't quite tell uh, uh, which band's gonna blow up. Not admittedly, sometimes, often, right? The the reason that the, the hit makers are hit makers, and and actually, they do have a talent for for hearing people and saying like, "Oh, that's gonna be huge." But there is a version where these A and R guys, I mean, they're mostly guys, as Dan says, A and R guys, um, have a set of like <laughs> indie pitchfork tastes and as a result the major labels over and over and over again throw money at bands that reflect in an era of low data right reflect their tastes but maybe not necessarily the tastes of broad audiences versus i don't know you know metal bands that are gonna actually sell million or country bands (laughs) or hip-hop bands that are gonna sell millions and millions and millions of copies even mod you know modest Mouse a very successful indie band
0: has a ceiling like why 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 do you think that they, that, that this this happened I mean I maybe you and Dan get into it a little bit but like you know I'm just curious like why suddenly these like these risks be taken I mean like Dan has this whole thing and we'll 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 leave it for the interview about the sort of transition of like why Green Day worked and the sort of like perfect storm as to like why that worked out but like do you what do you do you, would you feel like Green Day was a sort of like a watershed moment for like all of a sudden like there being like a little bit of a looser chain on the A&R guys like signing random indie bands or you know like what why do you think that this this moment kind of even became a sort of trend and I mean would you even call it a trend you know I mean I know I think it's definitely it's definitely a trend right because I think that there's a there's
1: in that immediate in grunge blows open and then partially because of of, of the the um Maybe arguably because like of the very specific aesthetics in that grunge moment where like at one level they've been, you know, those bands come out of kind of noisy SSTE guitar heavy stuff in the 80s. But they're also have like one eye on like 70s arena rock, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So like your Nirvana loves the Beatles, right? Like these are bands that there's a moment in pop culture where a lot of these big bands are are influenced by things that sold a lot of records right Um, and so grunge blows up and then in the wake of that a bunch of other bands that do get signed also rock bands also sell a ton of records right it's not just the big three or four Seattle bands it's also Weezer's Blue Album sells a tremendous number of records Um, the Smashing Pumpkins sell a lot of records like there's yeah, a yeah. lot of bands that Green Day sells a lot, the Offspring sell a lot of records. This moment, Offspring, which is uh, on on an indie for most of its life, um, or ex- existence, um, and like so, I do think that there's maybe this moment, um, where people who had come out of the rock underground for a second, there's a confluence of tastes. You know, the recent track record suggests that these bands can sell. And so that next
0: generation of bands, they're like, oh, man, like Drive Like Jehu is going to be big. And it's like, no. Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. Love Drive Like Jehu, but absolutely not. Well, it's also interesting because I can kind of understand it like when it was happening around um, the era of more of Modest Mouse, which I guess was like probably 2004, 2005, 2006, because it's like, you know, physical sales are changing it's moving to like digital downloads but then again like the numbers really aren't there and like the sort of uh the detailed statistics of like how long somebody like listens to something and like how many times and all of a sudden like isn't quite there and it just feels like maybe that was an era of like kind of maybe majors throwing everything at the wall and like trying to see what sticks in this sort of you know sort of uh growing pains sort of moment as like it kind of moves away from physical physical sales yeah i mean i think that there's there's like
1: You do have this moment, right, where, um, and and I think that pointing to what's going on in the industry is a really important part of this discussion, that another way to say this 93, 94 moment is that these labels in the 90s are absolutely flush with cash, partially because they're selling a ton of records with bands like Nirvana, and partially in this new generation that's like crystallizing its musical, new set of musical tastes, but also because they're selling, as we've discussed a bunch of times they're selling the Rolling Stones to baby boomers again on a new format. They're selling the cars and Led Zeppelin and all these bands again on CD and everyone's buying all the classic rock. And so that there is this immense amount of money flowing into the industry, but in an industry in which um, an industry that prides itself on, on, on taking risks and breaking bands and selling new records and just saying oh we're gonna like <laughs> keep selling beatles records forever maybe now in the streaming era that's like more of an acceptable exec stuff but there is a and i think that's one of the things that dan points out in a really interesting way is that these companies have cultures right they're not just like homo economicus profit maximizing things they have internal cultures and they have the the kind of the worship of record guys worship of people like clive davis who can hear an an artist and be like you're gonna sell a million records and that filters down to like low-level anr or mid-level anr people you know who are like i want to sign a band like green day or i want to sign a band that has something and you know rather than and and so and so there's a pressure to say like a real record label signs new bands and releases you know takes risks and has big hits and so and in a period where they're flush with cash and we know that if you push a band hard enough, you can sell a lot of copies of a record. It's possible to get these things where you keep just trying to, you know, a relieve that sugar rush, but also you have the money to do it. And, and on that second half of the point of those growing pains is, you know, even as things are starting to shift and record sales are declining, there is, um, it's not as bad as it's going to get yet, right? The record labels know there's trouble coming before, the bottom really falls out and so there is a period of time i think where they still have a lot of money and they're trying to trying to do anything they can to fix it um and like maybe thursday is the answer
0: (laughs) yeah yeah right well okay so i mean before we get to the interview i kind of want to ask you like on that note like that culture seems like it's it's dead now right like I i mean i it seems like the days, the heydays of the A and R guy, at least in the way that it was back then, is is gone. And now it's really about, you know, all the the numbers, basically, and the statistics that they can get, like you know, from social media hits and things like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's my sense. Um, right. For one, you kind of have to come in to be proven already, right? And you need the social media data, and the fact that that data exists. Means there's less risk, there's less less risk. Also, while they're making a lot of money, we know that like most businesses, the record labels are a lot less, are a lot thinner now, right? And they're making every, they're more profitable, um, because they're making they're squeezing every penny till it screams. Which means that the kind of um story that you get, for instance, and we talk about this a little bit in the interview, so I don't want to get too much into it. The story you get with a band like Jimmy World or basically it turns out in a funny way, like to not work out for the label that signed them label signed Jimmy world when they're like 17 year olds from the middle of nowhere and basically gives them the money to develop as a band. That kind of like career cultivation of A&R takes a while. And I think it in a system where you don't need to do that in the same way, like the cult of the A&R person is probably uh, or maybe, like, their their role in, like, fighting for those artists is, is maybe, like, is diminished in a real way. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're
0: right. Which, in some ways, and, you know, I'm curious if you have to think here, like, in some ways, that just means that where you do find maybe risk and interesting things going on it's is still either, like, with indie labels, or that's more complicated because the role of the label has changed. But it's also just, like, I guess with, with the indie artist, right? I don't know, like things haven't really changed that much just in the sense that you don't really, maybe the, the role of the indie label isn't as yeah, like isn't as important now as it might have once maybe it's like almost more of a tastemaker thing now in a sense. I guess I'm asking like, where's the risk now? You know, and it seems like the risk would be like a label like we were talking about you know, in a few episodes ago you know, with Shaw Ravens it's like, it's with labels like Pan or something <laughs> No, I mean, I think I, I don't
1: know. I mean, I think that some of it's like risking on superstars, right? Because you have like fewer huge stars and, you know, that last Drake album as a, a real <laughs> pivot and as a risk at some level for that label, because the difference in how much money they make when they have a huge Drake album versus, a you know, a, a less successful Drake album is big um just just one more thing before we go to the interview that i thought that i've been thinking about a lot so like a lot of this is from like the the label perspective but there's also this funny story about from the like the punk perspective um that me and dan talk a a little bit about at the end of the interview that in some ways is almost like i would pit couch as like a an ideological deterioration (laughs) and i'd be interested to hear your take on this, saxon so basically like you go from like a fugazi where they have they're like Don't sell out, but also we have an underground business that's like functional, right? There's ways you can make money. You can probably buy a house if you're a big underground label. And we've talked about like Steve Albini and stuff versus, you know, who who argues that you actually make more money as a band if you're indie. And you get by the end of like the 2000s, you get people who are like, "You're you're a sellout because you're a big band on like fat records because just because you had any success at all in this punk scene and it seems to me that that's like um it's like a real it's a real like ideological deterioration where it goes from trying to build something that could work to something that's just a total rejection of the system as a whole but like kind of almost accepts the logic of that system because like the only way according to that perspective like the only way you can be pure is to literally never make a living playing music which means that eventually you're going to stop like it's not sustainable to only sleep on the house on couches and in punk houses forever i mean eventually like your back goes (laughs) you need a bed
0: yeah i mean you can't seek ideological purity within a neoliberal capitalist economy because you like literally can't escape its trappings like no one is a pure moral subject under capitalism but in regards to music specifically and the topic of selling out you know it's a double-edged sword in a sense because Obviously, I support resistance to the systematic paradigm we find ourselves in, even if it's inescapable. And if you can create community and make a living in a sustainable way, as Fugazi did, you know, tending to your own garden, quote unquote, then of course I support that over maximization of profits. And honestly, if you think about it, maybe trying to find ways to create that sort of solidarity, whether under an indie label or maybe a label collective or, you know, some of the possibilities that we've talked about with, say, people like Matt Dryhurst over, like, you know, Web3, then, like, you know, perhaps that can mitigate some of the power of the major labels. And, of course, I also think that in the face of rising rents and further commercialization of urban areas, it's becoming harder and harder to create those really rich cultural underground DIY-type spaces that, you know, really become the central lifeblood of a city and its culture. But because it's so hard to live now in those cities... And just even create a community and just pay rent or gas nowadays then like how can you really blame any artist for going out and signing to a label or thinking of number one and no one else so i mean i get it but you know and i don't have an answer but i do think that we need we we need an ideological shift that maybe looks towards that so-called 80s garden of eden that you mentioned earlier as like a kind of sort of ideal maybe i mean of course it can't work as it did because the world has shifted but you know maybe the questions should be asked like what what can be taken from that and what can we do now to not just you know fracture into every band and artist for themselves but kind of help tend to our own our own gardens but um yeah we'll go ahead and uh turn to the interview now um once again i once again please rate and review us uh that always Jump starts the algorithms so we can spread the good gospel of money for nothing. Follow us on Twitter at m n Podcast and also please subscribe to our once a month newsletter, moneyfornothing.substack.com. Okay, enjoy the interview between Dan Ozzie and Sam.
1: with I guess I'm wondering if you could just kind of like lay the background for the story that you tell a little bit and, and kind of just talk about what what is selling out um in you know 1992 1993 the, the moments when the book uh is really getting started and kind of how does that connect to the the pretty robust history of an anti sellout underground culture uh, in the '80s.
2: Well, I mean, there's lots of ways uh, you can define it, and there were lots of criteria upon which um, people had that slur foisted upon them. But uh, I, I, for the purposes of the book, um, you know, the the line was the dividing line was. Uh, whether or not you would sign to a major label. And like, granted there were all kinds of questionable things you could have done corporate partnerships and and whatever. But uh, for, for the purposes of the book, it was just whether you were on an indie label or whether, whether you were on a major. And that seemed to be like a pretty uh, divisive move in the, in the eyes of a lot of fans.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it's just interesting because it's, it's, it's a divisive move um, in a way that maybe it wasn't, like, in the 70s, punk bands, I mean, I guess they did get called sellouts sometimes, but, like, were the Ramones sellouts? Like, Well,
2: okay, so here's what you have to understand that I think gets a little bit lost in, uh, in history, is a lot of people will point to the major ones of the late 70s, the punk boom, right? The Clash, the Ramones sex pistols and they'll say, well, they were all on major labels. Yes. But what happened was at that time, um, it was kind of major label or nothing. Like I'm sure there were people doing things on very small scales. Sure. But, um, the thing is like, it was, it was really like the major labels were the music industry in its entirety. So they put out the clash, they put out the Ramones, they put out the sex pistols. And then after punk, you know, quote died in the eyes of major labels, Um, they moved on like, you know, once, once probably the end of the seventies certainly 1980 came around. They were, they had moved on to R and B and like pop and, and, and new things that they just disco. I mean, not R and B. And so they don't, they didn't care about punk anymore. It was effectively dead. It wasn't profitable for them. So they kind of like left it. However, like a punk movement had kind of already been started. And so, the industrious fans of, of this scene not wanting to let it die, they started building an underground network that was, um, you know, underground uh, independent record labels, independent fanzines, independent clubs, independent promoters and distributors. And so like over a decade from like 80 to 89, 90 or whatever, like uh, 81, 91, uh, in that decade, you have this underground network pop up and it was very hard, hard fought, you know, and uh, people put a lot of like blood and sweat into building it. And I think once Nirvana came along and made sort of underground music popular, I think the people that built that network really dug in and they did not want it uh, corrupted by corporate interests. And so uh, to answer your question, I think like that's That's why it was so heated and antagonistic at the beginning of the 90s, because it was like this this network that had really been built as a grassroots movement over the course of the entire 80s.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's important to like that. This is not just, you know, DOA doing like uh, tours from punk house to punk house. It's like Discord sells a lot of records,
2: And has distribution networks. Yeah. I I mean, SST, SST sold a ton of records. So so it's like, it's
1: a, it's an underground like economy with real, with real scale and real staying power.
2: For sure. And, and no one was really getting rich, but people, if they did well enough could sort of at least avoid getting a job. Like, you know, you look at green day before they went to a major label, they had an album out. Um, when did their two albums come out? 89 and 92 or so like pre pre Nirvana. Right. And, um, Mm -hmm. and, and they were selling like 40, 50,000 copies on their indie label lookout. And, you know, I lookout had a really fair payout where Green Day was probably getting five bucks a CD that they sold. So, you know, like a band could potentially sell a few thousand CDs and make a few bucks off of them. And it, it wasn't it wasn't like uh I don't think anybody thought that they were gonna be a millionaire at that time, but it was like certainly an alternative to having a career.
1: Yeah, and and you know, there's that that's kind of the crux of of um, you know, that famous like Steve Albini. Article in um, it's not Descent, The Baffler, right. I guess.
2: Um, it started well, in the Baffler, and then it got reprinted in uh, in Maximum Rock and Roll. Yeah, yeah,
1: the, the The Baffler article where he's like, it's not just <laughs> that it's you know uh, morally or ideologically wrong to sign with a major; it's that you will make more money
2: staying indie. Yes, but like you know, not to discredit the great Steve Albini, but like that that is true. If you're at a certain point, you know, like if you're selling a hundred CDs, like it's not going to be financially worthwhile, but he's right. If you, if you are a band that can sell a few thousand copies of a CD at that time, you would definitely, uh, make more money. If you, what was the line that he says in it? You, uh, if you sold like a million records for a major label, you'd probably make as much as a, as a job at Seven Eleven or something like that. And um, yeah, there's certainly truth to
1: that. I I take your point that it's also, you know, if you're really a tiny band, you're not going to make a living. And there's also the problem that kind of brings us to the the first band that you cover. Um, There is these scenes that are like, you know, uh, incubators for talent. Let's talk about like the the, the scene in in, in San Francisco in the East Bay um, that Green Day comes out of. Um, The... Their incubators for talent, and bands come out of them and have this push from, you know, Lookout is kind of a, a, a solid record label that has distribution, um, and then Green Day's just exploding out of them, and Lookout literally can't handle Green Day's success, basically. Like they couldn't have handled the Dookie, they couldn't have gotten it in enough stores.
2: Yeah, I mean, it almost it's amazing that Epitaph pulled it off because the same year that Dookie came out, Epitaph released Offspring Smash, which ended up being like the best selling independent album of all time. And it sold like 10 million records and it like, you know, they were kind of figuring out, out how to adapt on the fly. And I'm sure they were making mistakes, but there's stories about how they had like warehouses, floor to ceiling that they rented out. Um, Just a House copies of Smash, you know, so like Lookout was a bedroom label. I mean, a literal bedroom label. And I I, they they were having trouble adapting to Green Day's growing growing stature, not just for the album sales, but like, you know, Chris Applegren, who who worked there, told me like uh, the Jerky Boys movie wanted to use a song from. Uh, I think they wanted to use like welcome to paradise or something like that. And he's like, we didn't know how rights worked like, or like what masters to get, like we didn't know what they wanted, you know, just so even stuff like that, that I don't think, I don't think a, a small label could have handled. Um, if, if Green Day exploded on, on lookout.
1: Yeah. And, and like, that's the kind of classic thing is that like the major labels are, good at dealing with truly high volume stuff. It's like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense for Lookout to try to adapt to Green Day because they're only going to have one probably. And all the investment, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't want Lookout to build a huge new warehouse because they're not going to need it realistically but like, that's
2: essentially like what happened to to look out you know once new owners took over they were like oh we should build up an infrastructure for our huge growing artists and then they realized like oh actually we don't have them <laughs> and you know they they the downsizing killed them so yeah you're right that probably would have happened if they were like oh okay we have green day let's bolster up our entire operation. I'm sure that once <laughs> once Green Day was over it would have just completely collapsed and they would have had huge bills to pay.
1: And the flip side is kind of the the next band that you, you write about, Jawbreaker, who I, I you have a quote in there, right? Which is kind of I don't want to put labels on them, but like proto emo post-hardcore emotional band kind of It's a terrible description, but like um Mm-hmm. That's kicking around with a dedicated following that is never realistically going to sell probably a million copies of a record and is an example of of in some ways I feel like it's interesting because it's like it's the purest example of that like the big ma- the majors come in and throw cash at something they don't really understand and kill it and and I wonder if you could talk about that but also it's weird that like it didn't happen that as many times as I expected in this book, given the kind of centrality of that as a, as a narrative in this whole period of time. Well,
2: Jawbreaker was an interest, interesting case and sort of like a learning process for a lot of people involved. You know, the, this guy, Mark Cates, uh, who signed them to Geffen, he, he had helped sign Nirvana or he worked with Nirvana at Geffen too, you know, and then he saw what happened a Green Day. And so he, Mark Cates, it's funny because like when you talk about major label A&R guys, you think of these like slick suits, but Mark is just a really cool guy, uh, like knows his shit about music, and he signed Jawbreaker, and he really, I think, thought like, okay, let's just Kind of put it through the machine that Green Day went through, and that'll work, you know. And they got them, you know. It was the same producer, Rob Cavallo. He produced both records. It was they. They hired the same mm-hmm. guy to shoot their debut music video. They hired the same. They did it at the same studio. You know what I mean? So like, they really uh, tried to put them into the Green Day mold. Um, and obviously Jawbreaker didn't fit into that. And that's not a criticism on Jawbreaker. Jawbreaker is a terrific, terrific band. But when you try to just be like, oh yeah, yeah. Like we'll just do what we did for Green Day. Um, that didn't work. And, and Mark Cates like admitted to me when we, when, when I interviewed him, he was like, you know, I was really kind of arrogant and I thought that we could just duplicate the success and that's not how it works. And I really like learned from that. Um, so I think after Green Day, you had a lot of, um, A lot of uh, there was a learning curve as to like what what would work and what would not work and and a lot of it was just like them taking chances on things, throwing everything at the wall, and just cutting losses when it didn't work out. You know,
1: yeah, and and I think that that like that approach because I mean it's interesting. Like this is a story with these two very different forces that I think that you do a fantastic job of, of of explaining. Like on one side, the evolution of punk music and the punk music industry, for lack of a better word. And on the other side, the evolution of the major labels. And in the backdrop of that moment, that jawbreaker moment, is this weird thing where, like, by 1995, are any of the grunge bands really still standing? Yeah.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for noticing that, like, I definitely tried to tell two stories at once. The story of, like, uh, independent rock music and uh, kind of the fall of major labels and the, and big business behind it. Um, but to answer your question about Jawbreaker in 95, so they got signed probably in 94. Um, yeah, like grunge was kind of like short lived, you know, like I, I feel like we, we lionize it so much because for, I don't know, three years or so it was every, you know, like the entire radio, I remember being dominated by nirvana pearl jam or like nirvana pearl jam wannabes and then smashing pumpkins nine inch nails you know that was yep. mtv and it seemed like it lasted for a long time because so much came out of it right like they were they put a lot behind soundgarden stone temple pilots temple of the dog garbage nine inch nail you know like there was so much of it that are still around today but it was very short-lived and um i remember uh the, rob cavallo who i just mentioned he produced um dookie and and he told me, he was like, you know, the, the people who handled like our MTV relations at Warners, they were telling me that by 93, mm-hmm. the feedback that they were getting from MTV was like, they were saying, you know, our fans are telling us, like we're hearing from our fans, our viewers, that they're kind of done with the sepia tinted, grunge hair flipping <laughs> angsty videos. Like I, like it, he said that it felt like there was a desire for something new. And I think that's why green day worked out. Cause they were perfect for that. They were colorful and poppy and punchy. Sure. And it was, it, it kind of like was rebellious the way Nirvana was, but it was like not so downtrodden. It was like fun, you know? Um, and so I think, I, I really think that green day like kind of took the baton from Nirvana and, and, and took it in a new direction. Um, but yeah, like that, I think just the long answer to your question that, that grunge scene, which has been documented so exhaustively was like rather short lived for sure.
1: Yeah. And it was interesting. Even Green Day only sold like the next record, after dookie doesn't sell i was shocked at how much of a fall off
2: i know um, and, and you're like what there wasn't record right? sales. and why is that and and maybe it was you know i think insomniac is a great record um but like dookie you know there's just like there's sometimes a record is just like special there's just something special about it where all of the pieces line up at the right time in the right way and and that that's that record like dookie is a is a perfect record and it came out at the perfect time like it was just like one of those things where like all the stars aligned and i get so i get so sentimental and and cheesy when i talk about this um but i i really think about um i think a lot about uh uh when they played woodstock which i remember being such uh, like an eye opener for mm-hmm. me watching it at home Um, when they had that famous mud brawl and I just think about all of the things that had to like line up right for that to happen. First of all, they added a third day. So green day wasn't even originally supposed to play it. They added the third day, third day, green day got added. And then like, you know, it, it rained that morning and Mm -hmm. caused the mud brawl that made them famous. And it's just like, again, I get so like cheesy saying this, but it's just like, man, like literally. the the nature (laughs) like if it hadn't rained that day green day might not (laughs) have had that iconic woodstock set so it's truly like a thing where like the cosmos like convened for green day to become like a like a special band um so yeah it's just like how do you duplicate that even on their next record how do you do that you can't
1: it's also interesting because thinking more about kind of like the major label culture um And I know this is it's kind of it dances on the outside of of, like just on the peripheral of this book, um, which is kind of because it's a book mostly about punk, which is the kind of the other major underground rock music, Mm -hmm. which is metal. And just thinking about like, you know, the big four thrash metal bands of the 80s, you know, Anthrax, Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer are still, you know, they did that package tour in like 2010 or whatever. Um, they're still selling records, some of them less than they used to, but just were able to you know sell records you know Metallica so was able to sell like platinum records like record after record after record after record, and some of that is you know the timing that they were eighties and not nineties, but also, I wonder about the kind of um you were talking about the a and r guys and how instead of being like total slime bags, actually a lot of them were like fugazi fans <laughs> um or like you know and some of it i wonder is like is there a little bit of and it's, it's similar. it reminds me of kind of like all these like a, a next couple of bands that, that sure, you're talking yeah. about um you know at the drive-in or the donnas to a slightly lesser extent which are these like lauded by the press beloved by the record labels and just don't sell copies in the same way and i'm wondering if there's anything about this is like the culture of the people who work at the record labels were like a certain kind of band more than, I don't know, the, the Deftones or, you know, or Mudvayne, um, and are able to like, and repeatedly try to push them when maybe the market, um, at least by the mid nineties, isn't, isn't supporting that.
2: Hmm. You know, I think like, a nice AR person is the type of person who rides for the stuff that he or she believes in. It's funny, it's it was mostly he though. Like I there were so few women sure. I realized doing Um, but a great AR guy, like a guy let me put this another way, a successful AR guy is gonna be the one who can spot a hit whether they like it or not. You know what I mean? Right. And so yeah, there were a lot of like um AR people at this time riding so hard for stuff that they just loved like yeah Thursday fucking rules thrice rules like we got to sign them and obviously like they didn't do as expected you know um but yeah I don't know if that's answering your question but the the personal tastes defines like that's the other thing too like I don't know you kind of think of it or at least I did when I was younger thought of it as like one singular thought process of major Uh labels but like when i stop and break it down i'm like oh no no i like i know the names of specific guys that kind of like shape the course of music like craig aronson who unfortunately is is no longer with us um craig aronson signed jimmy world he signed and he signed them before they even blew up and he signed uh at the drive-in he signed against me he signed Remember, like, my chemical romance olds, right yeah yeah he found them at, like in i practically in high school signed um my chemical romance against me uh avenge sevenfold who's not in the book but he signed you know like and this is one guy and you're just like wow this one guy right. was responsible for like so much of the direction of this kind of music in the early 2000s yeah
1: yeah yeah It's just so interesting because it's like you get by the middle of the book, I think, increasingly is this kind of and again, maybe at the drive in is like the pivot point for me, which is you get this really interesting split where bands, you know, some of the earlier bands sell a bunch of records, um, but aren't fully successful. Like Jawbreaker sells a number of records that like in 2020 2022 would make them the number one record. Oh my record. God.
2: They would be like the biggest selling. Yeah. If even if you could just do 50,000 now, you know, you'd be so Yeah.
1: But what you kind of get in this interesting way, maybe is you start getting this like bifurcation and where you start having like critically beloved bands that sign and like they need to, it's almost like they need to hit a certain status of, of success in order for this to go well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is a story that gets told a lot of that, the kind of the middle drops out of the music industry, but at the drive-in doesn't, maybe it could have, they hadn't broken up, but like, or the Donna's sell some records, but not a ton and just slowly dip off versus my chemical romance, which sells an ungodly number of records Mm -hmm. and then is able to tour forever on the black parade. Right. They're Mm -hmm. super, they're, they will never not be able to fill a stadium. I think probably, and and I'm wondering like why that that kind of middle falls away. Like, is it just downloading, or is it a change a change in the majors too in their ability to I don't know support a a band over three records, it, an ability to you know
2: I, I Jim Adkins from Jimmy Eat World has a great quote in the book where he says he's like you know I learned later on that major labels can handle. An artist that's selling thirty thousand records a week—they've got that. They know how to do that. Um, but getting them to that first thirty thousand is something that uh-huh. major labels are not great at. And it used to be that labels would be willing to invest over time a, a little bit more. I think, like that's what A and R is—it's de- it's artist right. development, right? Like you're signing Jimmy World when they're seventeen. And hoping you can give them enough time where you can get a hit out of them. Now I think labels do not have the money to do that, nor do they see the need to. Like they can look at an artist who has X TikTok uh, followers and has X amount of streams on SoundCloud, and they can crunch the numbers and say, okay, if we buy this person's songs, we can make X dollars off of them. And I feel like it's all very algorithm generated now, wherein, you know, an a person's strength used to be used to be like their gut feeling, you know, like, ooh, I hear this song. And I I think this could be a hit. It feels now like they're just crunching the numbers a little bit more. And that's not just with music. That's with film, too. Like you just see so much content on Netflix. That's like, yeah, this is what people want they want like a love story that's that stars one person of this race and sexuality, one of this, you know, like, and they're just mashing things together. It's almost like my friend who works in like a film tells me all the time that he's like, you would be horrified to know how much like numbers (laughs) determine this kind of stuff, you know? Um, So I think that that's what's happened over the last few years. Like the change in a and R, if that answers your question.
1: Yeah. And I think Jimmy world is kind of the perfect example of that. And and, and it, you know, it, it blew my mind because I don't think I knew um, the story of their their second major label clarity. I like learned of Jimmy Eat World when like the middle it blew up. I guess when I was in like late middle school, or early high school, or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, where did this band come from? And now Jimmy Eat World is a kind of funny story because their huge album isn't released on the record label that had funded their first two but like in terms of the major label system as a whole, oh. Jimmy Eat World goes from 15 year olds to like they got that platinum album out of them. The major label system did.
2: Eventually, yeah, it it's it is so funny though that uh you know they got <laughs> they got dropped uh by Capitol and then started making this record that from what i understand like People were just talking about it, like Bleed American. People had just like heard rumor that that they were working on something really special, and and they started getting major labels interested in them, and then even Capital was like, "Ooh, we should take a meeting to see if we, you want to <laughs> re-sign." Like they, Capital was you know like came back to them, and so it was uh, so yeah. Jimmy Eat World has truly like the one of the most odd major label trajectories of any band in
1: some ways it's it's weirdly because it's like it's the most it's very traditional right in in some ways it's and if you think about that period of the 90s the major labels are being they're sitting on a a, a geyser of cash from the cd era and they can afford Mm -hmm. to like uh make clarity which sounds like a hundred thousand dollar record that opens with like violin and glockenspiel and doesn't sound like anything else and definitely doesn't sound like the second album. Like I, I didn't Mm -hmm. realize having heard both records that it went clarity and then bleed American versus like bleed American. Then like, you know, just that, that they had this like very, um, this traditional relationship where a major label was able to like cultivate them over time. That by the time you get to, I don't know, Thursday even they're not able to give Thursday a a series of, of records with real support the same way that the bottom falls out really quick. It feels like.
2: Yeah. I mean like, well, Thursday was a huge investment. Like they put like a couple million into them and just didn't once you, when you put a couple million into something and it doesn't get the payoff, you, you probably want to cut your losses pretty quick, I would think. But Jimmy world is a heartbreaker for capital because, they could have had Jimmy, you know. They dropped Jimmy Eat World, but if they had given them, I don't know what did Bleed American cost. Even if it cost say two hundred thousand dollars, which I'm sure Capital ha- had in spades at the time, if they had just given them two hundred thousand dollars, right? They could have had the middle, you know. Capital really dropped the bag on that. But it's one. it's
1: interesting that they're just. It seems that by around like around the two thousands, and maybe this is just the the kind of decline in money from 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 the, the the move towards digital and, and also kind of the, the decline of CD buying. It, it does seem like their ability to do
2: that. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I, I, I think they're on much tighter margins now. You, you hear so much like pre-internet. I, I would hear so much pre-internet uh, talk from bands who are like, yeah, like we, the label still owed us $500,000, but they didn't want to put out our record. So they just let us go. Uh, You know, like major labels would just walk away from $500,000 sometimes. And like, when, when, when could a label afford to do that now? I mean, maybe they could, but I got to imagine it was a lot easier in the nineties to be like, oh, this didn't work out. We still have three more records in their contract. Whatever, dude, you can take them, you know?
1: What what surprised me, I guess, like just to kind of close things out was like, um, I had to admit, I was surprised by the majors continuing to throw the kind of money at some of these bands that they did. Like, I'm surprised that Rise Against got the contract mm. that they did at all. And it's a kind of funny thing. And again, like, that not only... It's a, a different side of a story that this show has covered a lot. Just they really are caught flat-footed and take a while to adjust, it feels like.
2: Rise Against was a pretty interesting success story because and kind of like an inspiring one to me because um they were kind of remaindered, you know, they got like shuffled from one label to another after they like merged and their people were gone, but Rise Against kind of just like grinded it out on their own until the label like took notice and was like who is this band that's just selling copies with no help. Like maybe we should put money into that, you know? And eventually it took off, but that was not, that was not a thing where it was like, great. Your, your, uh, your album comes out on October 1st. We'll put your single out on October 2nd. It didn't, it was such a long stretch that they had an album out. And I think like a full year later, the label finally got around to putting their, their single out swing life away, which became like a massive hit for them. Um, so yeah, they're a really like unique story, and that they were such a slow burn, you know
1: so by the time one thing you know we've we've been talking a lot in this interview about kind of the label side, and kind of flip it back to the other half of the book, the kind of punk side, is you also get and I'd be interested to hear your take on this it seemed like compared to the level of um vitriol that a band like Green Day or Jawbreaker gets. It seems that by, like I don't know, my chemical romance, that there's a lot of the 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 intensity around discussions of selling out. Um, a lot of that had kind of cooled off, and I'm wondering whether you thought that's accurate and, and why, if so.
2: Yeah, but then you had against me a couple years later, and that's I think one of the strongest um, vitriols in the book from from fan bases and. And so, like, I think it was still there. I It just really depended on how the artists carried themselves. Like, I don't think my cam really had any kind of hang-ups about the grandeur of their plans. You know, at, certain, at some point, they realized, like, we want to be a big band, and we're going to do that. And uh, their fans seemed, like, to be on board with that, that philosophy. Against me, it was a band who you know, like they, they made a documentary about how they wouldn't go to a major label and how silly it was that major labels were even interested in them. And then like, yeah, fuck, fuck this whole system. And it gave you something to believe in. And then six months after that DVD came out, they did sign to Warner. So, you know, like you kind of, you can't have it both ways. And I think that that's why that they got the vitriol, um, the worst maybe out of anybody
1: though it seemed like and this is something like with an interesting dynamic especially as you get um through the 90s like a handful of you could call them big indies right like not you know um mm-hmm. fat records uh epitaph um these labels that are really able to sell a ton of records right like epitaph is a fairly substantive operation and and similarly you get some of these indie quote unquote indie bands that um over and over again, it's really interesting. It's like are getting called sellouts like against me, right? It sounded like people were like angry at them for selling out when they were still entirely indie.
2: People didn't like any steps up. You know, like I, I think that like against me is one that I understand on a personal level because I was one of those kids. Like I really loved against me. I re- I love their philosophy. And then when they kind of like did an about face, it, it felt really like personally, like uh, like a personal affront. Like you were losing your favorite band. Mm-hmm. You know, you lost them to the big system. And so like when you started to get little glimpses of that it it did make you like averse to it. Like, yeah, like, Oh, I love seeing, uh, this band in these little places, but like, Oh wait, now they're signed to fat records. So my ticket price is going to go up $3 a ticket, which is not that much, but like, are you going to keep, you know, it's almost like inflation, like watching the price of your band, uh, go up and up and up. And you're like, wait, hold on. I don't like that. I'm kind of like losing you a little bit so yeah there were like those little those little things like i you know obviously in the book like major label or not is kind of the dividing line but there were little micro transgressions in the punk scene that people took issue with and and didn't didn't take kindly to yeah
1: it's really interesting because like a band that that we think a lot with on this show um like is fugazi because you know they're (laughs) uh just a very well thought through set of like economic principles, and and what's interesting, like by that example, it's like any little step up is a problem, is like you almost get it seems like the curdling over the story that that you tell here, the curdling of like Steve Albini and like Discord Record as like a a functional economic, like almost like a functional vision of like an almost utopian political economy, right? Like if we all work together, we can make, you know, this band could be your life basically. But Mm -hmm. by the time you have against me, it's like, you want them, you know, if they're not sleeping on couches, they're sellouts. Like they're not allowed to. And, you know, once you get the, the class story, if you get popular enough, you literally can't keep doing the same tours. It's not possible. Yeah,
2: that that's the thing that's like, you know, like this is, of course, not to disparage the great Fugazi. Right. But like, I, I do feel like we we lionized that that ethos that they had in that mentality, keeping ticket prices as low as possible, doing things in a very economic way. And that's great to a certain point. Yeah. Right. Like what were Fugazi playing to at, at their height to. Two thousand people, right? I don't know. Say it Two, was three, 2, something like people. that. Yeah. Okay. Say, say that say that was the case. Great. What happens when they reasonably need to play to five thousand people right. or more? You know, like they, they have there suddenly there aren't like independent places you know there aren't like garages that they can play that will or basketball courts that will hold 5000 people so like yeah that that is such like i like and don't get me wrong there are so many things about fugazi's ethos that are inspiring to me the way they operated the way they uh interacted with other people um but that, that but there's a, a definite cap on that that i feel like we forget in the like lionizing of their of their business operation um, at some point, people are going to have to be excluded if you can't grow to to meet the demand.
1: Totally. Though I, I often feel like what's funny in, in this moment now, like I, I 100% agree with that take. Um, and like, you know, they would try to do stuff to deal with it. But like, and it was a real problem for them, I, I think.
2: Yeah. And well, to I, like, sorry to interrupt. But like, I think at the drive-in is a great example of what would have happened to Fugazi if they had kept going a little bit more. Because... You know, at the drive-in was often likened to Fugazi. They had this like really chaotic um, stage show and stage presence. And, you know, at at the drive-in tried to do the same thing as Fugazi. Like they tried to control their show. And for a while they could. When they were playing to 500 people and they would see kids in the audience getting roughed up, they could see it and they would stop it. And they would make sure everybody was fine and they would kick people out if they had to or whatever and they could control it. They could control a room of 500 people, and it worked, and it was good. Then once At The Drive-In started playing festivals to 10,000 people, you can't control the violence anymore. You can't control uh, the behavior of your audience. And so that's ultimately like not the, but one of the major factors that ended up stressing them to the point of a breaking point is like they, it got too big for them to, to hold. And like, I don't know, like sometimes you, you'll go to, uh, uh, you know, you, you hear about these festivals where like these really tragic things happen, like Astro yeah, and, um, you know a girl a, 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 i write about this in the book but a girl uh, died was killed um seeing limp biscuit at that same festival that that at the drive in was playing and yeah, in you Australia, know there was that right? that like wood, that uh yeah and that woodstock 99 documentary um you know like it's not when it gets to that size it's not a responsibility of the artist To control it, you know, like it it can't possibly be. How could a, how could I don't really care for Fred Durst, but how could one man be responsible for the safety of sixty thousand people? You know, it's—it's ridiculous. And so, like, it—it's not to me. It's not incumbent on the on the band. It's not an artist's responsibility. They got hired to perform. It is the it is the responsibility of the festival to make sure that everybody's safety is, is taken care of. And so like, I think that maybe at the drive in saw, saw a future where it was nothing but that. And they got, they got scared, you know, like after the night that they like, can't, they, they it's, it's all in the book, but they, they had this like very disastrous set at that festival and they kind of pulled the plug early. And then later that night, a girl was killed during Link Biscuit. And I think like, you must look at that and be like, is that where we want to (laughs) go? Like, do we want to play to 60,000 people that might kill each other and we have to live with that forever? And so like, yeah, and I don't know what the answer is to be, to be frank, but like there is like a, when you get to a certain size, you must have to either put it out of your mind or because there's, you would go insane trying to, uh be responsible for the safety of every single person it's just impossible
1: and and that's that's really interesting and and i wonder if some of this then maybe points to like why that discussion in that line in like the present day has faded and that that's like the scalability factor right like green day blow up but the even like this meteoric rise like they were increasingly the biggest band in a scene and they like kind of had this it was fast but it wasn't internet fast because you still had to physically hear about them. Somehow you had to tune into the radio at the right time. You had to go to a store where you could get a physical record that may or may not be there, right? Like that's why you signed to a major. So your record could get to I don't know, middle America. But now there's almost, there's a, uh, like the problem that at the drive-in head, like you said, maybe like there's nothing to stop a band from getting as big as like the media ecosystem will let them get. In which case, like you're saying, you need to pull, call in folks who can handle 60,000 people because you know, your indie isn't going to be able to do it probably.
2: Yeah, I mean there's there is growing pains to having like a rising celebrity and some people are not geared to handle it like the at the driving guys are really thoughtful people, you know, and they don't want people getting hurt, they don't want people getting sexually assaulted. And so when they can't control it, I think it was weighing on them. Now, like, does Bono care when he's playing to fifty thousand people about everybody's safety? Like, I don't know, but I I feel like he you don't get to that level by stressing about every single detail of it. You know what I mean? Like, I I feel like at the drive and never passed that point where they were where they got to. Leave it in the hands of other people. They were a very hands on operation. And I think after a while, it just spun out of their control.
1: Yeah. And I'm just thinking also about, you know, the fact that that these punk bands, the bands that, especially ones that that take it very seriously ideologically, um, have like a different and contradictory relationship to the music industry than, I don't know, other kinds of underground music. Like taking a metal band as, you know, there's nothing inherent in metal. that says you can't mm-hmm. be in a stadium rocking out to 60,000 headbangers and letting a, a private security company make sure they don't hurt each other. Like no one's going to be like, "Oh, that's false metal." I mean, they might, but
2: yeah, the, I mean the principle of punk is so austere. It's like this set of rules that people put upon themselves, you know, and and uh and like I don't know, like a lot of other genres, hip hop and metal Uh, in particular, really like glamorize the high life, you know, like rap videos are just like bikini women and like, you know, like gold chains and cars and, and heavy metal too is the same thing. Like every fucking photo of Tommy Lee was him or Gene Simmons was like them with some like hot woman in a car or whatever. And so like, but punk like uh, really prided itself on like austerity, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially for for Tommy and Lee and those rap videos. Those were those were the the, the fat days of the music industry. Like rap videos, still expensive. Yeah, it was like, not... look
2: how fucking successful I am, you know? Like, and that's obviously just like the opposite of what punk's directive is. So
1: to kind of close out, I'm wondering if you you like uh, go out on a limb and, and 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 talk a little bit about where the discourse of selling out is now because when I was was thinking about the book after I finished it and it's this funny, we're in this funny moment, I feel like where at some level, like (laughs) every musician is a like, uh, against me style road warrior by necessity now, right? Like booking their own things, figuring out their own things. I mean, you know, the vast majority of musicians anyway, but at the same time, it, it feels like, um, the concern over selling out is, is, is really vanished in many ways. I'm just wondering if you could uh, like talk about that a little bit and about where, where whether, what, what is selling out in this year of our Lord 2022?
2: Well, you know, I think that fans uh, begrudge their favorite artists, much less for their business decisions because there's less money to go around and you recognize that your favorite artists need to get paid. So if that, if that means like doing a tour sponsored by vans or whatever, you know, like they'll do it and you don't kind of bat an eye. And, and, and for me too, like when I think about how much my commerce has changed, like, okay, for example, say a band that I, I really Uh like. Uh, okay. Um, and, uh, I didn't buy their record because I actually don't have a turntable right now. I've listened to it a lot on the Internet. I didn't pay anything for it. And I saw them when they came to town and I bought a shirt. So what is that? Forty dollars, forty five dollars, you know? And so like, okay, so a band that I really like, I've given them forty five dollars for an album that I've listened to so much over what could be like three years? I don't know. It's just, I, I'm, you can, they're only getting a cut of that 45. Y- you could be, you could be a fan for practically for free now. And so I, I just think of when I think of a, a, a band that I see doing something that maybe when I was, uh, you know, in the nineties would have made me cringe or something like that. I just think of it now and I'm like, well, yeah, good. F- get Get your money because I'm realizing that I don't financially support you as much as I probably should. You know, so like, what am I going to begrudge a band that gets a sync in a commercial or something like that? Where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I didn't buy your last record, so good for you, you know?
1: Yeah, no, and I definitely think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you think anything's lost in that?
2: Like that? For sure. I mean, like, I think one. one, Sorry to interrupt, but one thing that just kills me because, like, I don't want to be like old guy telling young kids what to do or whatever. But like, one thing that really kills me is like how disposable art has become in, in all regards I mean I, I'm talking about my book in that regard I'm talking about music movies you know I, I saw somebody complaining that like uh like a movie wasn't streaming instantly in their house and they had to go to the go watch it in the theater and this was like a big hassle to them and it's the same thing with music too I feel like even a hot new album will come out and make waves for like maybe a week like even Beyonce put out an album this year and I feel like we heard about it a lot for three days and then that was it you know so like I I don't know like I hate how disposable everything has become just because there's so there's so many artists that we can see because of the internet makes everything like present and also too they're they're putting out so much stuff because everybody's afraid of like um, being forgotten in the conversation. So there's just so much coming out now that like, that's what I think is lost is like, um, we've, we've made everything disposable and, and kids are like, and I get it, but kids are like the idea of paying for art is like discuss, you know, like they, they, they don't, they can't fathom the idea that they might have to, like, I just released a record. Um, and I, and I wanted to do it only on vinyl, you know, not streaming. Cause I wanted it to be like, let's make like, it's 1994 again. You got to buy this record if you want to hear these songs. And I heard people being like, why, can't, why can't I get a download card for this? Why can't I get this? And it's like, yeah, I don't know. Not everything is going to be exactly the way you want it. I, and I think that, that that's how we've primed fans is like, everything is going to be at your fingertips all the time for free. And if it's not, you have the right to complain. And so that's, that's what I feel like we're losing.
1: Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I guess, do you have anything to plug? I know that you tell, tell us about the record.
2: Well, I, I, it's, it feels pointless to, to put, to even promote the record because by the time this airs, they will be gone. It's a good Um, problem to have. (laughs) So I will say, I will say, I realize that that negates what I just said about people, people wanting things disposably. Uh, those, those records went very quick. So thank you to all my, my followers who bought those. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll, I won't end this interview on a down note. Maybe I'll say that there is hope because I put out a record and it sold out almost overnight. I mean, it was a small run, but like that kind of gives me hope that people are still willing to pay for things. So forget everything I said in the last five minutes, (laughs) um, this, that's what, this is what I really mean. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you.